What I want to do today is to have a look with you, not for the only time, but for the first time, at what we call the book of beginnings. That is the book of Genesis. It's obviously the book of beginnings, because it's the very first book of the Bible. It's the first book of Moses. And our authorized version, which we often call the King James Bible, follows the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint. The Latin letters that are used for that, if you ever see it in writing, are LXX. That's the Old Testament translated into Greek. And that particular version indicates the contents of the book of Genesis by the title that's taken from the first word in Hebrew. And that is the word beginning. So when you think about Genesis, you think about the beginning. And obviously that word is used even in the English language to talk about the genesis of something. It's the beginning or the origin of something. And so we have here the very thought that Genesis is the book of beginnings. This characterization is applicable to the entire 50 chapters of Genesis because it is one of genetic development all the way through. There are a number of things that I want to say by way of introduction to the book of Genesis because, because that is what this message will be. We're going to return to some more specific themes in Genesis in a future message. But I want to give what is something of an overview of the book today, and I trust that it will be helpful to you, under the following headings. First of all, I want you to think with me about the purpose of Genesis. What is the purpose of the book of Genesis, other than being one of the bookends of the entire scripture? Well, nowhere does Genesis record its own purpose. But by a careful reading of this book, one may grasp its unique significance because it is the record of several beginnings. Things that had their origin or their starting point here. We've read Genesis chapter 1 today. And so when we think about that, we note that in particular Genesis tells us first about the beginning of the world. The book of Genesis is not the only book that talks about creation. You will find references to God creating in many different books of the Bible. You, For example, we'll see it in John chapter 1, where it says of Jesus that all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. You'll see the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. You'll see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 1, where it speaks of God through Jesus Christ creating all things and upholding them by the word of his power. You see creation mentioned all the way through the Bible. Even the Lord Jesus, when he was preaching, said from the beginning it was not so. And he began to talk about Adam and Eve and about marriage and so on. But when you read the book of Genesis, <clears throat> it starts out with the beginning of the world. And it starts out with that period from before Adam, even before Adam existed. You see this in the first part of Genesis chapter 1. But it covers that period, the beginning of the world, right through from before Adam, right to Abraham. 
And then from Abraham, there's a new departure in the book. Because it starts then to speak of the beginning of the covenant people of God. And you have that period then covered from Abraham to Joseph. Now these two epochs that I'm referring to, the period before Adam to Abraham and then from Abraham to Joseph, they're seen in two main divisions in this book. You can divide Genesis into two very, very easily. Chapters 1 through 11 is the first section. And in that particular part of the book, with its brief summary of the world's history, you have what I would call primeval history. Chapters 1 through 11. But then from chapter 12 to chapter 50, there is the elaborate detail concerning only four individual men. And that's patriarchal history. So the book of Genesis easily divides into primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, and patriarchal history. That's the history of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so you have that part of the book that is divided in that way. The first division is introductory to the Hebrew history in the second division. The chief character in the book of Genesis is Abraham. He's the central figure. And most of the contents of the book of Genesis, you will see, are concerned with Abraham and his family. Abraham and his posterity. The story of the birth of Ishmael, first of all, who Sarah thought could bring about God's promise without waiting for it. Abraham went along with that. He took Hagar, her handmaid. They had a child. He was called Ishmael. Abraham said to the Lord, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. He wanted Ishmael to be the child of promise, but he wasn't. The child of promise had yet to be given, and that was Isaac who was born to Abraham and to Sarah in their old age. Then you have the history from there. Abraham and his posterity. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, they're devoted to primeval history. The history of heaven and earth. But the following 39 chapters, 12 through 50, are dealing more with personalities. With Abraham and his family. And we discover right away that the Hebrew race, the people of Israel, are no ordinary race. They're God's chosen people. And Genesis, therefore, is not merely the universal history of mankind, but it is the unfolding of the divine purpose of redemption and how that was to be accomplished even through Israel. The book of Genesis is history, but it's history with a special purpose. And that is to set forth as the foundation of the biblical religion the origin of God's plan of redemption but also the origin of the people who were chosen as the depository of that divine religion. 
The religion of the Bible is revealed quite simply as the bringing back of man to God through redemption. A lot of people today think that religion is about man trying to get to God. But actually the opposite is the the truth. True religion is God coming to man in his need and providing him with redemption. And all the developments of the religion of the Bible were designed to this end, the bringing back of man to God through redemption. So this is the basic message, the basic purpose, if you like, of the book of Genesis. From there I want us to think secondly of the plan of Genesis. There's actually a literary structure to this book. All books that you read will have some kind of structure to them, some a lot better than others, but this is the word of God. But it has a literary structure. And it's very clear and it's very simple. I want to show you in the initial part of Genesis just some simple thoughts concerning the fact that the book of Genesis is divided into an introduction and ten sections, each beginning with the same kind of heading. And that heading is, these are the generations, or the book of the generations. Now let's note this as follows. The introduction to the book of Genesis, we have looked at already this morning. We've read it in our Bible reading. Chapter 1, verse 1, down to the end of verse 3 in chapter 2. You have a whole summation here of God's work of creation. This is the introduction, not just to the book of Genesis, but the introduction to the Bible. But from there, you have this message about the book of the generations. Chapter 2, verse 4. Notice how it begins. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. So there's the first of the ten sections. It begins with a description of the generations of the heaven and earth. You'll find that from chapter 2 verse 4. Right down to the end of verse 26 of chapter 4. That's at the end of the chapter, where it says that then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. But look at the next verse, Genesis 5 verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So there's another section, beginning with that description. That you will find from chapter 5 verse 1, right down to chapter 6 and verse 8, where it speaks of Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Look at the next verse. Genesis 6 verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. And that begins a section on Noah that finishes in chapter 9 verse 29. Hopefully you're following me. Right at the end of chapter 9, all the days of Noah were 950 years and he 
died. Not something you read about all these people. No matter how long they lived, there's that little phrase at the end, and he died. It is appointed unto men once to die. And of course that death came into the world as a result of sin. But look then at the sons of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1. Here's the next section. Section 5, if you like. The sons of Noah. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. That will bring you down to chapter 11 and verse number 10. Where it says, These are the generations of Shem. So there's the sixth of the sections. That finishes in chapter 11, verse 26, where the Bible speaks of Terah, who lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Chapter 11, verse 27, Now these are the generations of Terah. That section finishes in chapter 25 and verse 11. Let's go over there. Chapter 25 and verse 11. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the well Lahairoi. Verse 12. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. So there's number 8. And that's just a short section. Chapter 25, verse 12 down to verse 18 where it says that he died in the presence of all his brethren so then you have the ninth one verse 19 of chapter 25 and these are the generations of Isaac Abraham's son that's also quite a lengthy section that goes from chapter 25 verse 19 down to chapter 35 and verse 29 So you go to chapter 35 of Genesis, verse 29. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now look at the next verse, chapter 36, verse 1. Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. So there you have that next section. And finally... Chapter 37, verse 1, is the end of that particular section. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. Verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. And that section on Jacob lasts from chapter 37, verse 2, down to chapter 50 and verse 26. So, the book of Genesis traces through these generations uh, those that we would call the antecedents of the chosen people. The family developed from Abraham. That family became a nation down in Egypt in the book of Exodus. But these that are mentioned prior to that, these are the antecedents. These are the people that went before. The chosen people, but also the Messiah. Now, as well as a literary plan, in the book of Genesis, there's what we might call a rational and spiritual plan as well. That is in three main sections. 
Now listen carefully. Number one, there's the introduction. The introduction is the origin of the religion of redemption as connected with the creation of man. And that's the story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That's the introduction, as I say, not only to Genesis, but to the Bible as a whole. This is foundational. And let me say there are people, some of them who ought to know a lot better, who talk about Genesis chapters 1 and 2 as if they were not history. They look upon it as some sort of parabolic discussion. It's not literal. And they go on into chapter 3 and try to tell you that that's not literal either. But let me tell you that Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3 are literal history. There was a man called Adam. There was a woman called Eve. There were men called Cain and Abel. And Seth, there was such a thing as the fall of man. There was the entrance of sin into the world. And that is in chapters 3 through 11, the fall of man and its consequences. So, I say there are three sections, three main sections to this plan of Genesis. It's a spiritual and rational plan. The introduction, chapters 1 and 2. Number two, the fall of man and its consequences. You find that in chapter three, where God has given to Adam the direction, look, you can eat the fruit of all the trees in the garden, bar one. There's one tree that you're not to touch. You're not to eat of it. Chapter 2 verse 17 gives us that covenant of works. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now what does chapter 3 of Genesis tell us? It tells us that the devil came to Eve in the form of a serpent. And the first thing the devil said to Eve was, Yea, hath God said. Isn't it interesting that the first words out of the mouth of the serpent have to do with the doubting and casting aspersions upon the word of God let me tell you the devil has never changed the devil has never changed his attack is always upon the word of God always I won't get into the issue of texts and translations today but that's part of the devil's work Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. He's bringing into question the word of God. He's questioning the Bible. Isn't that what men do all the time who are full of unbelief and skepticism? They call into question the word of God. Yeah, I know the Bible says, but, but is that really what it means? Is that really what the Bible says? And of course they go from casting doubt on the Word of God to just outright denying the Word of God. And that happened here as well. Because as the discussion continued, the serpent said unto the woman, Genesis 3 verse 4, Ye shall not surely die. Now you go back to chapter 2 verse 17. 
What did God say? For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. What did God say? Thou shalt surely die. What did the devil say? Ye shall not surely die. A direct contradiction of the word of God. He's denying the scripture. Which is his his wont. And you have great consequences from that in chapter 3 where Eve and Adam fall into sin and all mankind fall into sin. You have the consequences of that. Right away you have murder taking place in the first family. In chapter 4 where Cain murders his brother Abel. From there it gets worse very, very quickly until in chapter 6 the Word of God describes man's situation in verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How did he get to there? Because of what happened in chapter 3. Sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, it wasn't long before the consequences of sin were manifested in the entire world, in society. By the way, the Lord Jesus tells us that in the days prior to his second coming, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. The wickedness, the ungodliness, the outbreak of sin. So that's the second section, the fall of man and its consequences. And then there's a third section which begins in chapter 12 and goes through to chapter 50 and it's what we would call the new beginning. You have the Lord calling out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of Mesopotamia, a man called Abram, later to be called Abraham, the father of the faithful. And he, of course, is the father of all who are of faith, according to Galatians in the New Testament. These three sections of Genesis that I've mentioned as being pivotal, Three main sections, the introduction, the origin of the religion of redemption, connected with the creation of man. Number two, the fall of man and its consequences. Number three, the new beginning. They've been described by Dr. G. Campbell Morgan as generation, degeneration, and regeneration. That's a really good way of remembering it. Generation. There's the creation. Degeneration. There's man falling into sin and the consequences of that. He becomes a degenerate. But then God takes care of that by redemption, by regeneration. And that is a wonderful truth that we see in Scripture. The Lord takes those that have degenerated and He regenerates them. But there's a third point I want to come to in the message concerning this introduction to Genesis, the book of beginnings, and I'll call that the progress of Genesis. There's a definite literary and a religious unity in the book of Genesis, as you would expect, but there's an exact chronological thread running through it as well. And all the parts of the book are interdependent. In other words, Every part of Genesis depends on every other part of Genesis. It all goes together. And men who try to cherry pick the Bible and say, well, I believe this, but I don't believe that. You may as well forget that, because if you can't accept one thing in Scripture, you can't accept any of it. 
Because it all belongs together. But as you look at Genesis, and as you make your way through the book, there is progress. There's a similarity of language throughout the book. And like the rest of the five books of the Pentateuch, it's written in accordance with a definite plan. It's worked out consistently from beginning to end. For instance, there's a regular series of genealogies from Adam to Jacob. Now by that I mean genealogies, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so. The genealogies are the lists of the names. Now occasionally you'll find that those are interrupted in order to reduce, or, or to introduce rather, some related facts, and then it's resumed again. But these deal, first of all, with what we might call the collateral branches of Adam's family. You see this in chapter 5, where it speaks of these various people, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalaliel, not easy to say, and Jared, and on down through here, Enoch and Methuselah, not Methuselum. I really hate when people say that. It's not Methuselum, it's Methuselah. Just like when people say the height with a TH on the end, when it's not, it's the height. That's just me. Anyway, these genealogies, you will see, are interrupted by history, by some relevant facts that are introduced. But you have, before the main topic of Israel being introduced from chapter 12, you have Cain before Seth. You have Ham and Japheth before Shem. You have Terah before Abraham. You have Ishmael and Esau before Isaac and Jacob. Now God's presence is prominent throughout Genesis. That's a really important point. You might say, well that's obvious. Of course God's presence is in Genesis. Doesn't it start out that way? In the beginning, God. Yes. But it continues like that. God's presence is prominent all the way through Genesis. And it's clearly shown here how under the guidance of the Lord, the purpose of redemption is accomplished. How was it done? By the separation of a chosen man, and then from that, a chosen race from all others. And we'll come back to that point when we're looking at Abraham in a little more detail. But this is a really important point. The Lord chose a man, and He didn't choose him for any other reason other than the fact that He chose him. Abraham was no better than anybody else in Ur of the Chaldees. It's not that God looked down and thought, well, now he's, he's a good man in the midst of a moribund society. There's, there's a bunch of wicked people, but there's a good man. No, that's not the way it was. And as you study your Bible, you find that Abraham dwelt on the other side of the flood as an idolater, as a pagan, just like all the rest. But God chose him. God brought him out. And then there was a chosen race that came from him. And we see here in Genesis how that chosen people was fitted for carrying out God's purpose. 
You'll see the section from chapter 1 verse 26 to chapter 11 verse 32. It gives the descent of Abraham, all that came before him. It really explains in those first 11 chapters why a new start, a new beginning was necessary. And also how Abraham was chosen from among the sons of Terah, even as Seth, Noah and Shem had been chosen before him. It's really interesting to see this God's sovereignty in choosing men through history. And we'll get into that at some point in a future message. But it's so clear, isn't it? So clear. Not Esau, but Jacob. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Not one of the other sons of Terah, but Abram. God's choice. And you see the reason why such a selection or an election was necessary is the perennial conflict of good and evil. This is something that's outlined in the first gospel promise. We looked at it last time in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity. That word enmity is talking about people being enemies. People being against one another. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Here's the battle of the ages. It's between good and evil. That battle is going on today, men and women, in this world, in this society, in America. What you have at the moment is a great conflict, even in social matters, between good and evil. Between that which is godly, that which is right, that which is proper, and that which is evil and abominable in God's sight. Now we talked about the unity of the book. Another way of regarding the unity of Genesis is by observing that it records the story of man and not just of creation in general. That's important. There are great representative men in Genesis. There are three of them. And I just want to say that each of these men is associated with three things. Each of these three great representative men in Genesis is associated with a great event, with a threefold promise, and with a sign. Now let's think of the three men. Who are they? Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Those are the three great representative men in Genesis. Adam, Adam in whom the race was born. What are the three things connected with him? There's an event. What is that event? It's the fall. When you think about Adam, you think about the fall. In Adam all die. By one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men in that all have sinned. The fall of man the entrance of sin, that event is associated with Adam. But there's another thing associated with Adam, and it is a promise. And it's that promise of Genesis 3.15. It's a threefold promise of conflict, of victory, and of suffering. There's a conflict, but there's going to be victory. We know who wins. 
Who wins? Christ wins. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. Christ is victorious. God will bruise Satan even under our feet shortly, the Apostle Paul wrote. So there's a promise. It's a threefold promise. And then there's a third thing associated with Adam. And that is a sign. What is the sign? If you look with me at the end of chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, record, therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. There's this sign. It's the sign of the cherubim and the flaming sword. What is that to do with? Well, it's to do with separation because of sin. Why was Adam driven out of the garden? Why was the cherubim there with that flaming sword? To keep Adam away from the tree of life. Because he had sinned. He's banished now from God's presence. Though we know that he was redeemed. But this is the sign associated with him. Separation because of sin. Who's the second great representative man? Noah. If Adam was the one in whom the race was born, Noah is the one in whom the race was preserved. Think of this. The entire race was destroyed at the flood except for eight people. Noah and his wife, their three sons and their three wives. And pastor, are you telling me that those people repopulated the earth? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Just as all men came from Adam and Eve, so from, from Noah and his sons there came again the race being preserved Think of that, how close the human race came to extinction. You ever think about that? Think about that. How close the human race came to extinction. Reduced to only eight people. Now, we have more than eight people here today. Can you imagine if only eight of us were on this earth? Nobody else. No one else, anywhere else. You travel hundreds, thousands of miles. You never meet a soul. You better be in a family where people get along with each other, otherwise you're in real trouble, aren't you? There's only eight people left on the face of the earth. That's what the Bible teaches. And the, the, the race was preserved through Noah, and there are three things associated with him. What's the event? Well, you'll know what the event is. The flood. The worldwide flood, not a localized flood, a worldwide flood that covered the entire face of the earth. There was the judgment of God. That's the event. But then there's the promise. When Noah came out of the ark, God gave him a great promise. What was that promise? Chapter 8, verse 21. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, which again shows us the value of sacrifice. Noah had learned that. He built an altar and took every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
He knew how to come to God. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. See, the ground had been cursed. You read Genesis chapter 3. But the Lord said, I will not curse it again. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So that hasn't changed. Man is still depraved, even after the flood. Noah and his family are part of this. But he says, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. And here's a verse that will put your mind to rest about climate change and how the planet's going to be destroyed. Because God says, while the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. I have to tell people like Mr. Gore, that's an inconvenient truth for him. God will preserve this earth until the time when he decides to destroy it, which he will. And there will be new heavens and a new earth. So don't worry your little head about man destroying the planet. He's not going to be allowed to do it. But what is this promise? It's a threefold promise of dominion. And it's a promise of sanctity of life and a promise of assurance. And we can read all of those things when we come to chapter 9 of Genesis and verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There's a promise of dominion. The sanctity of life in verse 6. You have the law of capital punishment. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. That's why people are to be put to death for capital murder. Because they're destroying the image of God by murdering someone else. This is the scripture. But then there's a sign associated with Noah. And oh how I could spend a lot of time on this. What happened when the Lord was giving his covenant promise to Noah Genesis chapter 9 from verse 11 and I will establish my covenant with you neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth and God said this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth and it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh and the bow shall be in the cloud And I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. What is the token of the covenant? It's the rainbow. The rainbow belongs to God. The rainbow is not a sign of anything but God's covenant and God's promise. 
Isn't it just like the devil to take something that speaks of such a wonderful thing and make it to speak of that which is an abomination in God's sight? That's what's happening today. Do you think the rainbow was just kind of chosen by sodomites, you know, sort of at random? Oh, that, that looks like a nice idea, beautiful colors. We'll, we'll use the rainbow to talk about pride and LGBT, whatever issues. Folks, that is no accident. That is no accident. That's no happenstance. When you realize what the rainbow represents in reality, and what these people have decided it should represent, what is that? It's separation through sin. And then the third character is Abraham, Adam in whom the race was born, Noah in whom the race was preserved, Abraham in whom the race was blessed. Oh, what a blessing came through Abraham. And if you read Galatians chapter 3, you'll see the tremendous blessing that has come upon all of us through Abraham. He's the one in whom the race was blessed, and ultimately Christ. But there's three things connected with Abraham. There's the event, there's the promise, and there's the sign. What is the event? It's the call of Abraham. Genesis 12 tells us, verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. There's God's call to Abram. We read about it also in Hebrews chapter 11, where it speaks of him going out by faith to a land that he didn't even know. That was the event, the call. It speaks about redemption. It signifies redemption. But there's a second thing. There's the promise. What is that promise? Well, it's a threefold promise relating to Abraham. God gave him a promise concerning the land. And God gave him a promise concerning the seed. And that's a great study in the book of Genesis. In fact, a great study through the Bible. The seed of Abraham. Ultimately, it's referring to Christ, as Galatians 3 points out. And then there is the subject of blessing. What wonderful words these are. Genesis 12 from verse 2. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. And make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And ultimately, if you're a believer in Christ today, that's a promise concerning you. You have been blessed along with faithful Abraham. So there are three themes in all of this. Talking of Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Three themes... The themes of sin, of judgment, and of redemption. There are three men prominent here. And with them there are events, there are promises, and there are signs. And in each case, the promise answers to the need. There's a Savior. There's safety and security in that Savior. There's blessing in that Savior. 
So in the book of Genesis, even in these men that are representative men, man is viewed as fallen. He's viewed as punished as a result of that fall. But he's also viewed, thank God, as redeemed. We don't have to leave the story in Genesis chapter 3 where it speaks about the fall of man and the terrible consequences. Thank God there's a saviour. And God in the book of Genesis is seen as the creator. We see that in the first couple of chapters. He's also seen as the judge. You see that in relation to the punishment of the world through the flood. But he's also seen as the saviour. And there are some beautiful pictures of the saviour, even in the events that took place in Genesis. Think about the flood. How were Noah and his family preserved? They were preserved by an ark. The ark was of certain dimensions. The ark had one door. The ark went through the judgment of God. It was there the whole time that the fountains of the great deep were broken up and there was all this cataclysmic flooding of the earth. But the ark floated on the top of that. The ark was preserved and all who were in that ark were preserved. It's a type of Christ. It's a type of our Saviour. And one of the things that's written in the book of Genesis concerning the ark is that it was lifted up above the earth. And I always like to think of that in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. He was lifted up. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. We are saved because Christ was lifted up. Christ is pictured in the ark. There was safety, security, salvation. For Noah and his family in the ark, just as there is safety and security and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many pictures, there are many parabolic statements concerning the Lord Jesus in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. I've just sort of scratched the surface this morning. But I do trust that as we continue to study that the Lord will show us more truth from his precious word and he will show us Christ because ultimately this is our purpose that we might see the Savior in the book. May God help us so to do.